the more you understand a system or a set of interlocking systems, the more curious you are about how they respond and behave to change. Choose to be Curious is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton. Welcome. Come, choose to be curious with us. Most of these episodes are fundamentally curiosity celebrations, little forays into the delights of intention and inquisitiveness. I am, after all, a self-declared fangirl of the curious way of life. And then I came upon this. Curious about the inevitable, can we gain knowledge that will inform our governance of the land? And does this knowledge justify a preemptive strike to eradicate a forest stand? When I read Sita Sisla's Confrontation to the Environmental Cost of Curiosity, a, a list that is as thought-provoking as it is long, I sent myself on an intentional journey of challenged assumptions and weighted values, of choosing to be curious about curiosity in a new and very different sense. This was, I imagine, exactly the effect she was looking for, and I'm delighted to have her here today to hear more. Sita Sisla is a professor of ecosystem ecology. She contributed the opening chapter to Curiosity Studies, The New Ecology of Knowledge, a whole volume devoted to igniting practices of what they call radical curiosity on an everyday basis in our everyday lives. What better place to start? So welcome, Sita. Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited to talk about curiosity and curiosity in the scientific enterprise. I'm ex very excited to have you here. So I have to ask, usually I start with what got people interested in curiosity. But now I wonder, was it the cost of curiosity or curiosity that came first for you? For me, curiosity came first. I was curious about understanding how the natural world works and understanding how the natural world works in response to um, rapid environmental change. And specifically with humans in the mix, right? Yes. And so when I say environmental change, I'm really talking about human activities and their effects on the environment. So climate change and warming, as well as land use change and um, resource use and the effects of that on ecosystems and how they function and then how those changes feed back to affect humans and human function. I've developed my scientific research. I've also become increasingly interested in how scientists, environmental scientists, decide what questions to study and how we approach those questions as they focus to environmental change and whether um, we as a community need to try to be more reflective ourselves about how we conduct our science. And so I've become curious about the process of science as well as the scientific questions themselves as my career has developed. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about the trajectory of your career. Where has your curiosity in this field taken you so far? Yeah. So my scientific career really started as an undergraduate, and I was interested in 
basic plant physiology that was rooted in questions along um, water transport in plants. And that really stemmed being in a plant physiology class, which I took on a lark my sophomore year. And the professor taking us outside the first day, eight in the morning, everyone's tired, and having us just look at trees. This is in um, Pennsylvania. These aren't dramatic trees. These were oaks or something like that. And just asking the question of how do they get water from the roots to the leaves? Mm. And I was like, huh, how does that happen? I had no idea. And then he pointed out like, to try to imagine what it would be like to suck water up a straw that was you know, 20 <laughs> meters high and how much, how much negative pressure you'd have to have. And so he's like, well, how do trees do it? And I was like, huh. And I realized like, I had passed plants, obviously, my entire life and had never, ever thought to ask that question. And that was really the root of my sort of dive into curiosity about the natural world, just like trying to understand how systems function. As my career has progressed, I went from understanding sort of physiological questions in organisms to how organisms interact in ecosystems. And we are right now in the midst of arguably the greatest rate and extent of environmental change that the biosphere has ever seen um, that's being caused by human activities. So everything from like rapid biodiversity loss to rapid climate change to rapid resource extraction and, and shifts in resource availability. And I became interested in sort of that, that overlap between our, our effects on the environment and how systems function really from the organismal level up to the, to the landscape level. Yeah. Um, and so my, my, my curiosity grew as my understanding of the world grew. And I think that that's, you know, fundamentally rooted in science. The more you understand a system or a set of interlocking systems, the more curious you are about how they respond and behave to change. I think that's a great point because there is, you do need some foundation, right? To begin to even have an idea about that there are things to have questions about and to kind of build from there. But then also to kind of come at this with like, what more is there to know? How might I think Mm -hmm. about this differently? So I can sort of see the breadcrumbs that lead to this question of the cost of that curiosity. Tell me about your journey with that. Was there an aha moment or did this kind of evolve over time for you? I had my first real work studying the intersection of ecological systems and global change through a project I was hired to do up in the Arctic right after finishing my undergraduate studies and going to a system that is the most rapidly changing biome on earth in terms of climate um, really pushed me. I would say that was my aha moment because Mm -hmm. It was the first time in my life that I was able to understand and understand the consequences of, you know, climate change in terms of visible changes on an ecosystem. And so I, I, what, I, what I mean by that is that I was working in a set of experiments that were emulating some of the global change effects that were happening. So increasing nutrient availability and increasing temperature um, in the Arctic, and then looking at those effects on the on the ecological communities. And they're really dramatic and very quick in, in the system. And so I was able to see these changes sort of in like a more in more real time than you would from, you know, reading it in a book or or waxing philosophical about it. And I think for me, that was that was really the aha moment that we, we live in an era where sh- 
you know, systems, there's no static in natural systems. Systems are dynamic, but that we are, we are creating novel trajectories in ecosystems. And I, I think I had not really understood the gravity of that um, before. Later on, dr- driving across the U.S. for the first time in my mid-20s and seeing the landscape transformation through agriculture was similarly an aha moment for me because as an East Coaster, agricultural development is more subtle depending on where you are. But as you move into the Midwest, you see these large tracts of land that have been fundamentally transformed. And I think that um, seeing the human footprint on the environment in that way, rather than reading about it, was really another transformational moment for me in terms of considering, yeah, our, our footprint upon the earth. And trying to think about how, what the consequences of that are, both for ecosystems and, and their coupling to human systems. Well, it is such an – those are great stories. And I can imagine that certainly in the polar context, I wonder sort of at the extremes, at the poles, whether those changes are more visible than in our everyday lives. You know, certainly here, similarly on the East Coast, not in the agricultural area, mm-hmm. I'm blind to – Right. Those transformations to large swaths of the country, and there yeah. is something about actually driving for miles and miles in the midst of that to imagine, well, what was once here and what was true then and what's here now and what's true now? And then to sort of go to that next question about, well, and what might be true in the longer term, but also in the foreseeable future, and ask the question, did we have anything to do with that? (laughs) Right. I think that people become accustomed to the transformations that they see as every day and stop recognizing that that is extraordinary. And then they, 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 I think their curiosity is tempered because they think that's normal, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so, Mm -hmm. So for instance, in terms of both agriculture and climate change, if you think about agriculture, if you're in a region that's highly transformed by agriculture, has been for a century or more, that is your your lived experience of what the environment is. So it's hard to imagine or envision what a, a prairie system might look like or function like, right? Similarly with climate change, I teach students who are born after 2000, their idea of what a New England winter is is fundamentally different from what my idea being just a generation older of a New England winter is right like so that that normal what is normal to them in terms of the number of catastrophic weather events on an annual basis is completely different our baselines have already shifted and I think that provoking curiosity requires being able to take a step back and reflect on what has shaped a system to be the way it is. And when I say a system, I mean like an ecosystem. So what is shaping how an ecosystem or environmental system behaves and how might it have been different or how might it be different, right? So what governs that system and what is going to govern that system and what are the responses of that? So I definitely, as a, as a scientist, who's also an educator for for students who are either going into sciences or, or not, um, one of the things I try to push is to really reflect on what the baseline is mm-hmm. and whether the baseline mm-hmm. is what's normal or what even defines a normal state in these systems. And so I try, I try to push this with my students to get them thinking and being curious 
about the trajectories of the ecosystems that they inhabit, both historically and within their own lived experience. Yeah. So I have I have two threads of questions kind of going in my mind. One one of them is, uh, I confess I came across a new word in your writing. I feel like I should have known this, but I had never seen anthropogenic. Genic? Is that the right way? Anthropogenic, yeah. Yeah, which seems to me to go to this question about sort of the, the humans in the mix and this whole idea of you know, what we call normal and what's the new normal and mm-hmm. how our understandings of that changes our even our curiosity in that dynamic system um, and and the necessity of sort of looking at ourselves and understanding, well, where am I in that dynamic system? So tell me more. Tell me more about sort of how you bring that into science. Yeah, so anthropogenic is a fancy term for human cost. And mm-hmm. so the reason in my writing I use that word and other scientists use that word is to specify to the reader that the changes we're talking about are um, unequivocally caused by humans. So, for instance, I spent a lot of time in the chapter talking about an invasive species of adelgid, the little insect that is wiping out um, hemlocks in the northeastern U.S. and they're decimating the species. The adelgid was was brought, accidentally introduced from Asia in the 50s. And so it it is a human-caused shift in the environment. Like the humans are the ultimate driver of the change. Whether humans are, you know, a natural part of the system, and so our changes are natural, is I think a, a deeper question. Mm-hmm. But that's what I mean by anthropogenic. And so, when I um, think about systems and ask my students to think about systems, I encourage them to think about systems in the context of what they might look like if people's influence were not involved, and then how people either directly or indirectly affect the system. So, you know, in in places where human habitation is really dominant or um, agriculture is really dominant, even if it's low population, we see these sort of physical transformations, and they're, they're obvious to the eye if you stop to think about it. In places like the Arctic, which are um, fairly sparsely populated in in contrast, the, the changes are more subtle. Mm-hmm. But those pollutants aren't necessarily coming from the communities that live there, right? Like they're coming globally and being dispersed. You're listening to Choose to be Curious, conversations about curiosity and work and life. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and today, Sita Sisla, a professor of ecosystem ecology, is challenging us to consider the perhaps unintended costs of curiosity. With things like climate warming and its effects on the Arctic, those those effects are from a global driver and then happening disproportionately in places where there aren't many people. But then those those changes can feed back to have huge effects and ramifications for the entire globe. So I try to really help students understand the links between human activities and the environmental shifts that we're seeing. And sometimes it requires some digging because they're subtle or the changes have been there for so long that no one notices anymore. So for instance, in New England, where I'm based right now, the the riparian system, the water system, is heavily dammed. So it's been heavily modified because um, mills were a huge part of the New England economy in the 19th and early 20th sure. century. That's no longer the case. 
but the waterways remain per unit area the most dammed of any waterways in the country. Most people don't know that because we don't see that as as it just is, right? That just is. Or if anything, we function. think of it as picturesque, right? There are all these exactly. little old mills, and there are these cute exactly. little dams and water wheels, and that's part of the. It's part of the scenery in a picturesque way, not in a yeah. way that we understand might be disruptive. It's a new. It's an aesthetic, right? right? It's, it's an right. aesthetic, and so I think to, to drive people's curiosity about the intersection between the human world, the natural world, and like what constitutes sort of that that mixing of the two. I think trying to really see the influence of people on the environment in all these multifaceted forms is really important. And and that it's within our backyard and our urban context, even in very subtle ways, as well as extremely remote areas of the globe. I mean, I think one thing that's interesting about the human experience right now is that we live in a time where we've really touched every part of the world. Like I, I think it would be I would be hard pressed to think of an area of the biome which has not been um, affected by right. human activity either directly or indirectly. And I think that that's that's I mean, as a scientist that is like a singular point of curiosity because it's it's incredible. We're just one species, right? right. So Right, but we're having this this sort of out of proportion impact. But I, I find myself thinking a lot about intent here, right? Yeah. I mean nobody's intending to to have, I mean, thinking in the mill context, like downstream negative consequences in a literal mm-hmm. and figurative way. But good intentions, not enough, right? I mean, good intentions, there was good intention in introducing all sorts of species that we thought would help with crops and, and other kinds mm-hmm. of things, which have had these longer term consequences. So there's a it seems to me a case to be made also for bringing curiosity to look past our intentions to those maybe probable, certainly possible, certainly needing to be considered impact and outcomes. So I think this is, you know, where system thinking really comes into play. And, you know, historically, like up to the last century and a half, I think people just collectively did not recognize the sort of cascading effects of one change on another on another in Mm -hmm. in ecosystems, right? The ecosystem concept is a relatively new concept in, in human, in human thinking. And so, you know, for instance, the idea that we could eradicate an entire species, like just drive it from the face of the earth, right? Through, through um, land use change or hunting that, that wasn't in the human paradigm, right? That 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 right. was something that people were capable. Right. It was unimaginable. Of doing. Sure, it was unimaginable, and I think that you know the recognition that um, we also can't necessarily just fix it, right? That it's not like if you raise a house, you can just build another one. If you dam a river, you can't necessarily just undam it at some later point, and it's it's just a restored system, right? Yeah. Like putting more more fish stock, and it doesn't necessarily restore it. Like I think that these were these are ideas that we're still learning, right? That the connectivity of energy and matter flow across and within ecosystems is complex and and dependent on multiple factors that are both biological and abiotic in nature. And when when we dramatically shift one, we really start to explore the resilience or resistance of systems to these changes over, you know, over time. And right. uh, I think it's, it's, it's definitely pushes back on human hubris 
that we can't always just restore things once we realize they've, yeah. they've been irrevocably changed. Right. And I guess like climate change is, one, is a great experiment in that sense because we are we are on an unprecedented journey right now as a species. Yeah. So. Yeah. So how has this changed the way you think and go about your work? A lot of my work is centered in Arctic responses to climate um, change, although I, I also work in more local systems where I live. And one of the things that I've tried to, to do as a scientist is really become more reflective about how I conduct my research and how I educate others, students, other people about the type of work that's going on more generally and sort of our understanding of ecosystems. So I think like as a scientist, one of my greatest contributions has not necessarily been my journal articles, but public talks and also teaching introductory courses where I can't, like kind of am able to target a wide array of students who may or may not have any interest or background mm-hmm. in environmental mm-hmm. science mm-hmm. about the kind of extraordinary rate and, and extent of change that we're experiencing across the biosphere right now. And I think that has been among the most meaningful work I've contributed to because as an educator, I've been able to convey this knowledge to a new generation and a generation that's really going to be faced with the weight of this this incredible trajectory of change in in my in my view. Yeah. And so I think communicating with people about the fragility of ecosystems or their ability to be resilient in some ways, but not necessarily ways that are conducive to the way humans want to live in the biosphere is an important thing to educate people about right now. And I think that that's that's the way that I'm trying to move forward in my own work. And as a scientist doing research, I try to be a more reflective practitioner. You know, collecting data requires a lot of energy and resources, um, whether it's flying from A to B or the number of test tubes or bags you use to collect samples or whatever. And I, I try to be more thoughtful about approaching sampling in a way that is as efficient and as less as as efficient as possible and embodies as little cost as possible in terms of my own environmental footprint, even though I realize that as an individual scientist, as an individual, my footprint is, is relatively small. It's very, very, it's minuscule. Nonetheless, I think that when you are educated in an, in a subject, you have to also practice in that. And I, and I try to, I've tried to embody that within my own research practice by, by not necessarily getting every sample I can, but really thinking very deeply about why I'm trying to get the data and information I get and how to most quickly and effectively communicate it to a broader audience. Nice. Nice. Do you have other practices that you would consider curiosity practices in your own life, professional or otherwise? Uh, you know, I think being a scientist is something that that we all kind of do instinctively. So like mm-hmm. trying to yeah. ask and answer questions about how things function right? Whether it's like interpersonal dynamics and the systems that are within human systems or dynamics of understanding how our children grow and why they're doing what they're doing. And so I think like I embody this sort of curiosity about my day-to-day life. And honestly, like one of the great things about my, my professional life is that it encourages me to be able to think on it and be on my toes and be open to new knowledge all the time, right? Yeah, nice. The, the, te- 
the tension is that um, it is a professional job and you still have to be working within those the confines of the profession, which, you know, may to some extent curtail or limit the extent of one's curiosity because you have to still finish projects, right? <laughs> so it's not just it's not just unlimited. I think the governance like that, like governing systems like that are, are not necessarily bad and can be really good for helping people refine their questions about how the world functions. But I would say that like my training as a scientist is broad and what I really have learned is how to ask questions about things and in, and also enjoy life, right? Like like the world is, has infinite possibilities and I think that my curiosity allows me even on particularly difficult days to just enjoy how things function and and be amazed. And I think that keeps me curious about being alive. This is cool. Yeah, that's actually a camouflage snake. Looks like a snake. I took Sita to heart and went in search of others who were both curious and careful about the world around them. Mike Benson and Anna Lopez teach at the Bilingual Oyster School in Washington, D.C. They let me tag along with their Explorers Club of second and third graders. They were eager and generous adventure companions. Um, Now, all the places we go are kind of interesting because they're not, they're sort of natural, but they're not entirely natural, right? If you look around here, this stream, I'm sure is natural. I'm sure it's been here for a very long time. But does the bed of the stream look entirely natural? What do you see that looks like it was made by humans? The walls, this bridge, of course, right? Look at there's like sandbags over there. And then notice up here, we have a bunch of bamboo. Does bamboo grow naturally in Washington, D.C.? No, it's very No, someone, someone must have planted it. So anyway, as we're walking, just look around and try to think, you know, what, what might be here naturally? And what, what's been put here by human beings? I like to explore because it's not so many people and it's more calm in, in here than in the city. And do you think there are ever any unintended consequences to exploring? Um, yeah, like you can, like if you think a flower is cool and you pick it, um, that can that will kill the flower, and other people might want to see that flower, but you picked it, and so now nobody else can see that flower, who, who, who people who come by. Hmm. So, for example, if a human doesn't see some bugs or something, they might step on it without knowing, and then they might regret what they just did, and that would be a type of mistake. Like the time we got stung by yellow jackets. Yep. Worst time of adventures club of my life. You've been listening to Choose to be Curious. You can hear this and all my previous shows on my website at choosetobecurious.com. I hope you follow me there and on social media at Choose to be Curious. Many thanks to my guest, Sita Sistla, and to Mike Benson, Anna Lopez, and their intrepid explorers. Links to Sita's work in Curiosity Studies Anthology 
on my website. Our theme music, as always, by Sean Ballack. I hope you'll join us again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Because rocks do not go grow naturally by itself. But sometimes people can just throw rocks and then they will get older and older. And this is built by humans.